Hey guys, welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the show where we get the world's top climate companies, the folks that are tackling real, big, dirty, real world problems on, and we try to get some funding. Today, I'm brought, uh, I'm hosted or joined by Pratiba Vipolari, I'm sorry, Pratiba, I'll do my best, I always get somebody's name wrong, uh, from unreasonable ventures or unreasonable group she'll give a little bit more of a breakdown of of herself and what they do there and unfortunately our other two investors well as is anything with tech sometimes things break sometimes things fall apart we lost them so you're going to have to deal with us as your uh, as your sharks so to speak so i'm your host matt ward i run forward vc we're an early stage climate syndicate and climate accelerator big news we're actually officially announcing that on thursday but our partner in crime program partners with uh, really promising early stage climate companies on a networked growth hacking approach to try to help them get new clients, new customers and scale before raising that all important seed or pre-seed round. We, uh, if you want to learn more about us and what we do, you can find us at Forward VC, the number forward.vc. If you like the shirt, my sister made it. Happy to give you a recommendations if you need someone to get a shirt design done. And if you need recommendations on where to find funding, then you should definitely check out our Climate VC database. That's just at forward.vc slash VC database. We've got 850 or so funds on there. Incubators, accelerators, CVCs, it's all indexable and searchable by stage, sector, geography, and check size. So if you're looking for your ideal investor, and you're based in Chile and making a food tech company and trying to find investors that have exposure or focus on Series A, you can find exactly them. Again, that's this that's forward.vc slash VC database. And all of this is brought to you guys by uh Valbon by Carta. If you didn't notice, Carta bought essentially the biggest player in the business of SPVs, and that's who we love and use with our syndicate at forward vc so as i said we've got our accelerator we've got our syndicate and our syndicate invests in early stage companies that are really making big dents on the world kind of like some of the companies here we love we love carta and we love albon because it makes it super fast and easy to set up an spv but it's great for founders too if you want to handle kind of esops cap table um, management equity and shares for your employees and all the ins and outs of running a venture business to learn more about them and what they do visit forward.vc slash carta c-a-r-t-a use that link to know and to show some love for uh the startup tank the startup tank of course is your uh your dragon's den or your shark tank for climate companies and we're also brought to you guys by the eugen agency we've got a pretty cool bonus for anyone who's tuning in and actually pitching tonight so the winner will we receive the winner our startup tank uh climate startup of the night the that pratiba and i will We'll crown at the end. Normally we have a few more investors, but some of the sharks got uh, got hunted out of the water, so to speak. So whoever wins that award, they'll get 5,000 5, uh, British pounds and free services. That could be a pitch deck. That could be branding help. That could be a website template, et cetera, from the Eugen agency. We'll have links and uh, we'll have links, et cetera, in all of the descriptions. You can find out more at forward.vc slash design. But now I've done enough talking. I want to bring in Pratiba with Unreasonable Group, and then tell you guys a little bit more about the format. Before I do, Pratiba, do you want to hop in here and share a little bit more about yourself and what you guys do over at Unreasonable? Absolutely. Firstly, thank you so much, Matt, for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Pratiba Upluri. I know it's a bit of a tongue twister. Um, I head up the investments here at Unreasonable. And by way of quick 
contacts and reasonable uh, partners with large corporates and invites high growth, high impact ventures into what we consider to be ecosystems of support where we envelop them with mentorship, thought partners, strategic opportunities, as well as financing. I also started a syndicate platform here at the Unreasonable Co Group called Unreasonable Collective, where it's a manager-led syndicate model. Uh, so we look at sourcing, screening, evaluating companies within the fellowship, so within companies who've joined these ecosystems of our support. Um, and we present it to our investor base uh, that is a core part of our community. Um, so to date in our fellowship, we have a little over 300 companies globally and at a collective we've deployed uh, roughly around 10 million in 15 companies. Not Over bad, not bad. And not bad. we at Forward VC, we invest in companies that move the world forward and we accelerate them with what we like to think is the biggest, most hands-on and strategic uh, networking focused uh, growth acceleration program out there. For more details on our partner in crime program, because we will be your partners in crime. It's just forward.vc slash accelerator. But this is the startup tank. You're here to pitch your companies. You're here to raise money because let's face it, A, the economy sucks. B, you're building climate companies, which take a ton of cash to grow and scale. And you could probably use the, the help for growing, scaling, building out the team. Format of the startup tank for anyone who's new. Each company will have five minutes to pitch. We're hard on the timer. And then about 10 minutes or so of investor Q&A. At the end of the night, Pratiba and I will crown a climate startup of the night. And that company will receive 5,000 in, uh, in free credits for design work from the Eugen agency. That could be anything from pitch deck, product design, MVPs, prototyping, et cetera. And consolation prize, any of you guys who are listening, or sorry, any of you guys who are pitching, you get a one-on-one -on -one discovery session with them on branding and positioning for raising your round. Either way, should be hopefully very helpful. And now let's uh, let's kick things into the actual program itself, because you guys are here for the companies. You're not here for me, let's be honest. And um, without further ado, then, I think I would hand things over to Leo. Are you ready with uh, with Factory? Yep. <clears throat> and just, just let me know when you're ready. I'll give you a one-minute warning, and things should run nice and smooth. Sound good? Yes, I'm good. Let's do it. What's sustainable manufacturing look like? Okay, so thanks a lot for the opportunity to share with you what we're doing very fast forward there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of factories who has huge challenge of both go on and producing and in parallel reduce carbon footprint and huge amounts which basically means that coos in this world need first of all a tool that will help them to understand what is actually going on on the ground in terms of footprints and will help them <clears throat> to budget and manage the reduction processes for the next 15 years. And this is exactly where factory comes in. Basically, what we are doing is to aggregate data from the different sources in the production floors, automation layers, ERPs, quality systems, aggregate all this data automatically and produce a automatic models of the production process. In this case, for example, you can see a process of a synthesis. And the idea is that we are analyzing all the data and automatically identify the main steps of the production process across products, across sites, 
and understand exactly what goes in, what goes out, and how much time each step takes, which allows us, first of all, identify exactly what are the different emissions which are associated to different production processes, set operational environmental goals, and following that, detect opportunities of reduction, whether it's uh, whether it will be different areas of uh, de detection of uh, operational anomalies, changes of energy mixtures, or different elements regarding raw materials. Factory has been established a year ago. Since then, immediately we've got a lot of data from our design partners, which is a Syngenta group, and immediately made in the next in the last few months we actually went through a big number of POCs and currently we are starting our initial go to market with the Syngenta group around the mod, uh, around the monitoring uh, part and during 2023 we are planning to launch the diagnostic uh, package as well uh, we are currently raising our seed round following to a save that we've already raised. Uh, I'll be very happy to answer any question. Thank you. Wow, very fast, very efficient. Um, thanks for thanks for that. Let me pull uh, Pratipa back in here and then we can we can get started while I'm doing that. I mean, my first big question is just who is your ideal customer then? Is it is it cust um, chemical companies and producers? Who are you looking to sell to? So we are basically the, the type of companies we are starting with are chemical companies and building material companies and you know all the many all the material manufacturing world uh, and within the organization we are targeting COOs and in the future we'll also target CFOs but we are not ready for that yet. You want to take things away, Pratiba? Sure, sure, absolutely. Could you speak to your tech stack a little bit more? I'm curious about, is this something that you are looking at uh, just the data points that you've trained your, you know, or data set, you know, what's where, how, you know, what is the outcome that a COO would be receiving? Is it recommendations? It's just love to understand a little bit more on that. Yeah, so very, very fast forward. This is the factory. This is how it looks. Usually it contains a lot of different production lines sitting in the specific buildings and a lot of utilities that supporting these production buildings. Within this stock, you have different systems, ERP, quality, many, many data points. <clears throat> that first of all, the goal is to aggregate automatically and extract out of all this mess one big uh, understanding of how a production process looks like, something like that. We are limiting ourselves, by the way. The approach is to provide a horizontal view, which basically means to understand what are the steps, what goes in, what goes out, and how much time does it take. In the minute that you have this thing automatically and you can actually trust it, so first of all, you can set operational KPIs and environmental KPIs, allow the COOs to set operational environmental KPIs to each site in which you will find factory and start the reduction process, move forward. And the other piece, sorry, I don't have it here. And then the other piece actually to look on different abatement opportunities, whether it will be 
detection of operational anomalies, whether it be different elements of energy mixture, uh, changing of raw material, and over time, we, we'll, of course, will implement other uh, things like you know carbon capture and stuff like that. But the idea is that if you are a COO and you have 100 and, or 50 sites around the world, they all the time has been analyzed. You understand exactly what is going on. And the system is looking for opportunities for reduction as in each place, in each geography, in each production process, the opportunities will look a bit differently. So the idea is to flesh what, where the opportunities are, combine them with the strategic aspirations of the organization and allow, provide a system that identifies these opportunities and pushing it forward for execution. Got it. Thank you. Um, can I ask one more question, Matt, before? Yeah, of course. Curious about your pricing model. How does that look? So we are focusing on the site level pricing because for us, it is a fundamental element to cover the site end to end. And as a starting point, we have for chemicals, for example, we have small site, mid size and big sites. Uh, the price point for big size sites would be around 150 Ks. But of course, you know, this is the price that we are starting with for the monitoring piece. Uh, and there is still way to go to validate this approach. For sure, it has to be on the site level because analytically wise, we have to cover the site as a whole. Otherwise, we will lose huge amount of data and won't be able to fulfill our tasks. Got it. Thank you. Which of the MD or R do customers find most valuable and why? Sorry, I'm not so sure. Monitor, detect, and reduce. Which of those three is kind of the big value? Which is the one they have to have and which are the nice to haves? Well, eventually they have to have all of them if they want to reach their operational goals. Usually it's a bit hard to detect if you are not monitoring. So, you know, it's an evolution. It's easier to provide the monitoring. The detection and the reduction involve recommendations. So it takes more time to develop, uh, but eventually they need all of them. What's your background? Why are you doing this? So I'm dealing with uh, a process optimization in manufacturing for the last eight years. My previous company was dealing, still dealing with deep optimization of processes. I'm dealing with digitalization in general for the last 25 years and dealing with the environmental areas for the last 15 years both as a not-for-profit, as an investor in different companies. So it's an area that's important to me. That's not much. Mm -hmm. and, and by mistake, I also understand data infrastructures and manufacturing. <laughs> Is that what makes you unique? There, there's a lot of people trying to create digital twins of either supply chains or manufacturing processes, et cetera. What's your, yeah. why are you guys 10x so better? I, so first of all, I don't know if we're better or worse. I think that looking from the startup perspective, uh, I think there are two elements. First of all, we know that uh, infrastructure and manufacturing, it's not something so you, it's not something straightforward. I mean, there are many people who can learn to do it. It's a, the entry barriers are relatively high, it takes time. The other element that we have very deep design partnership with a lot of factories and we've basically got 
full data infrastructures of these factories before starting write code. Usually, if you will try to do it yourself, it will take you at least a year, if not more, just to get to a point that you are starting to look on data. So I assume that we are well positioned to run faster than anyone else. I don't think that we have something more unique than that. But if um, you're running, sorry, go just ahead. one follow up to that, and then you're a Pratiba. Sorry, yeah. if you're running faster than everyone else, but there is so much setup and time, how do you scale something like that quickly if it is really intensive and hands on in the modeling process? So, and the, I think this is exactly the thing. Today it takes us around uh, three days to cut to create one model for one product which by the way good enough to start with and within six months from now we will do a situation that we're doing it within three to four hours including the qa of someone on the ground uh, and this is basically the key the capability to do it fast meaning which means also that you can do it much cheaper you know to compare a uh, Companies are dealing with process optimization, for example, who didn't invest in the scalability of the onboarding and AI systems to support it can do it today within two to three weeks of onboarding for one production line, which means basically that their business model under their circumstances, they have to charge at least 100 k a year for one production line. This is basically what we're targeting for the site as a whole. Okay. Pratiba? So that's super helpful, Leo. Um, curious about your projection for this year. Um, could you speak a bit to the pipeline and uh, how confident do you feel about being able to meet the 2023 revenue target? So I'm pretty much confident. We already start. We already submitted the first uh, <laughs> purchasing order to Adama with the first three to four sites, and right now it's under approvals. Uh, and the next step will be standard industries, with whom we're already starting to work and Syngenta Group. In terms of pipeline, I think we are good. Uh, we have very deep relationship in this uh, sphere and very good relationship with strong uh, channel partners as well. Uh, as an example, my chairman for the last few months is actually the one, the per a person, his name is Alec Fox. He was a number two in Rockwell Automation in the global one, the SVP corporate development of Rockwell. So we're already starting to work with, work with Rockwell towards as a step when we will be mature enough in terms of digesting more projects. And we have our own internal relationship with manufacturers that I've built for the last eight years. So I guess first step, we are good. Next step anyway, will come through channels. We won't do it ourselves. And as Matt alluded, there are several players in the market trying to attempt to do this. I'm curious to hear who do you believe is your closest comparable? It's a, it's a great question because basically there are two main segments who are approaching more or less the same challenge, but from completely different angle. One would be all the environmental accounting companies. I don't think that it's a real competition. We certainly not look at it as a competition because environmental accounting companies don't have the data and the modeling that we have. 
as simple as that. And we are not building environmental accounting modules. So actually in the, in the future, we will push data to these type of solutions. Uh, from the other side of the spectrum, there are companies who did who are doing things like we used to do in my previous company, which is different process optimization companies. They certainly have the knowledge to do this type of things exactly as we do, but they don't have the technology because to optimize one project process versus analyze horizontally all the factory, it's completely different products and completely different technological stacks. So theoretically, there are companies who can do it, and I believe that there will be companies that are doing it. On the big companies level, those who I'm communicating with, like Rockwell, like Schneider Electric, like Honeywell, they're not doing these type of things yet because they're trying to reposition their own products. Uh, from the startup perspective, again, to, to move from process optimization to what we are doing, it's like to build a new company with people who know what they are doing, but still it's a completely different technological stack. And this is why I'm building factory as a new company and not doing it as extension to my previous one. Got it. And in terms of the financing left that you will need to undertake to create uh, to get this uh, product to profitability. How do you anticipate your cap structure looking like over the next two to three years? So to get to a point that we can support uh, the massive penetration, which would be, let's say, 60, 80, 100 sites, um, we're right now estimating on, on the engineering level that we will need around 4 million US dollars to get to this point. Uh, and this is basically what we are planning to do within uh, the next 18 months. Th the main technological barrier is actually to jump from a few sites to 60 to 80. If you have 60, 80, you have 800 as well. It's You're actually getting closer to the full stack SaaS uh, value proposition, okay? In between, you know, you're not building everything today. Part of the things you are trying to, to postpone because we don't have enough resources yet. But right now with 4 million, we will get to an infrastructure that will allow us to implement effectively the monitoring piece and come out with the initial value propositions around the diagnostics. Uh, I'm emphasizing initial because the diagnostic part is, uh, you know, it's never ending story and there is a lot to add, a lot of depth and IP to develop around this world. As I said, right now we're looking on, on detection of operational anomalies and energy mix and all these type of things, which are closer, let's call it to positive ROI, which yeah. is good supporter to fast implementation because it creates value. Later on, we will have to touch things which are not, not more complex technologically-wise, but business-wise, it's certainly more complex, like yeah. carbon capture and changing of raw materials and stuff like that. Yeah. Thank you. Matt, over to you. I think I think that's everything so that we have enough time for all of the all the companies. But Leo, thanks for thanks for sharing. It's very interesting what you guys are doing. It's clearly something that needs to be there. Again, it's just the the kind of race to be the one who does this the best. And if that's uh, if that is venture scalable and how scalable it is is my big questions. But thanks uh, thanks for presenting it either way. And I want to move things on now to our next company of the night. 
how about Justin with FedUS? Do you want to take over, Justin, and share a little bit more about what you guys are doing for a renewable energy future? Sure. Thank you very much. I hope you see my screen. Looking good. Okay, let's go. My name is Justine. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Phyllis. And as we like to say, we make the sun shine at night. Now, we want to make 100% renewable energy globally a no-brainer. And before I start now with the pitch, I wanted to remember three things at the end of my pitch. Number one is which, which problem are we actually addressing? Number two is what does our solution look like? And number three is what do we make different also in our business model? So to understand the problem, the problem is not that renewable energy is expensive. It's the cheapest source of electricity in human history. That has been officially also announced by the International Energy Agency already in 2020. So you might wonder then what is the problem? And the problem is the intermittency. By now, most people know that the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't always blow all the time, but we need a solution for that. And the solution is actually to shift large amounts of energy from when we have more than we need to when it's not generated with energy storage. Now, our solution is an energy storage system combined with a software component, but mainly we're talking about a liquid air energy storage. It's a containerized solution. And what really makes it unique is its flexibility, its scalability, and its low cost. Now, how does it work? Sounds super complicated, liquid air, what is that? The simplest way to think about it is the same way that if you boil water on your stove at home, there's pressure increasing. And if you have water vapor and you cool it down, it becomes liquid. We effectively do the same just with air not, and not with water. Now, why do we do this? Um, there has a couple of benefits. A, it's a scalable solution because it's containerized, because it is modular, we can mass manufacture it and leverage, leverage economies of scale using mass manufacturing. It is low cost because the materials we use are mainly steel, gravel, and air. And we're probably not gonna run out of gravel anytime soon. It's modular and transportable, which allows a new kind of business model, more on that than a bit. We have filed a patent on the process, yet the most components we use are off the shelf. So that is a good de-risking on the technical side, yet having defensibility because of the patent on the process. It's a very safe system and we can build it with local supply chains. May that be Western supply chains, Asian supply chains becoming increasingly important when we talk about the energy space. Now, who wants that? There's a couple of different customer groups all across the value chain from generation to transmission to demand. And we, as we speak, have a first pilot customer on the side of the commercial industrial. It's a wood pallet factory in Germany who also has renewable energy operation um, generation on site. But that company um, is wanting to build with us the first large scale system. Now, I mentioned as the third part, the business model. And the classical business model is um, for most energy storage, you sell it, maybe have a service contract. Thanks. But that's it. But that does not incentivize sustainability. When we started the company, we wanted to make a scalable company that has sustainability in its core. And our system lasts 20 to 30 years. It has no degradation. But our customers might only care for five years because their project lifetime is five years. So there's no financial incentive for us to build a more sustainable, longer lasting product. And that is something that we wanted to fix. And the best way to fix is by going towards energy storage as a service. So that means a customer has a recurring revenue, has a recurring um, subscription to a, uh, to a storage on site or even remotely. And then after five to 10 years, we can relocate because it's containerized, because there's no degradation. So we can charge per use, but we don't have any cost per use. 
Now, who's building this? We are a top-level team of uh, 13 heads by now, seven full-time. Um, we cover all relevant areas of the business, mainly focusing around three core pillars, strategy and operation, product, and marketing customer. Because in contrast to most deep tech startups, we didn't start with the technology. We started with understanding there's a market need for long-duration energy storage and then developing a technology exactly for that customer and market pool, not the other way around. Now, we are raising right now money. That's why we're here to quote you from the beginning, Matt. Um, we are raising a 6 million seed round. Um, this round will allow us to scale up um, from a prototype in the lab that we have 40 seconds. today. Yes, thank you. Um, and uh, will get us 24 months of runway. But now, last but not least, uh, I told you in the beginning, you should remember three things. I want to remember one thing, and that is we want to make 100% renewable energy globally a no-brainer. And that is all I want you to remember. Thank you. Awesome. I think we can remember that. I think we can all uh, we can all toast to that. Let me pull myself and Pratiba back in. Pratiba, do you want to take things away? Do you have questions for Justin and Feras? Thank you for that, Matt. And thank you for the pitch, uh, Justin. To perhaps kick off, um, do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? And love to understand the team's unique uh, capabilities and skill set to be able to pull this off. Sure. So um, short background story about me. I co-founded my first company in parallel to studying my bachelor, um, did some import business. What, like it took away the, the, the fear of founding. Like in Germany, that's very prevalent that there's a big fear of founding a business. So that was, that was gone after that. Uh, my personal background education-wise is industrial engineering and then material science in my master. Um, but uh, after that, I had the privilege to travel around the world, saw a lot of the world and how different it can be and also what it might mean to build globally scalable solutions. Um, and then worked in two startups afterwards, one medical AI startup and one a semiconductor hardware startup before then being frustrated with management in most places and saying, okay, if I'm already always frustrated, maybe I should do it myself. So I'm at least frustrated with myself. So um, that was uh, combined then with a longtime friend, uh, Leon, co-founder who um, analyzed in a techno-economic analysis do energy storage actually, are they profitable if you put them on the Iberian grid? And that sort of jump-started the whole Felas endeavor. Um, and then uh, from a team perspective, we have uh, we, we hired Masood, who is um, uh, came from one of the best universities of uh, Turkey, got him um, to migrate, uh, immigrate to Germany. Uh, Pitt is, is a top physicist. And Christopher is actually the brother of my previous co-founder. And we were he has a business psychology background. Um, so it covers a lot of the operations early on, which is super valuable, um, but also having good contacts into the DAX, German um, highest uh, companies there. And uh, bringing that all together, what really is interesting is that it's very differing um, viewpoints, yet there's always the consensus that we want, that we strive for understanding in the team. So um, we always get the feedback that when we discuss or when we um, communicate, it's very different. Different, yeah. Love the richness in uh, the experiences and the team profiles. I'm curious, given that you guys started off with really looking at the pain point and the landscape, do you mind sharing a bit about the players in the market and what makes you guys unique? Uh, mm -hmm. 
So there, in the the market that we're focusing on is the so-called long-duration energy storage. So that's anything above six to eight hours. Lithium battery storage projects are now somewhat getting into that range. But if you ask me, they're just still too expensive. It's just that the market is so bad that these expensive projects are actually able to, to proceed. Looking at the long-duration storage, there's different technologies, different companies at different stages. What we most see being proposed are these OAM kind of solutions. I build a large facility, I build um, monoliths, I build custom engineering. And um, what is really what, what we have not seen anybody do, like some might have a, have a modular system, but they're going away from it. They are go, like there's a company ESS who started with containers and they're now going to an energy warehouse. But I think the interesting thing is, and that is not yet seen much in the industry is, the ability to move your asset and decouple project lifetime from asset lifetime. Because right now they're always coupled. So you always have to somehow figure out how does your asset make financial value, make profit at this location in the grid, in this configuration. And we're like, no, you just have to bet that there's demand somewhere and then you can adjust over the years. And that combined with, with um, mass manufacturing to drive down cost and the flexibility, we, we don't see that from, from other competitors. If you look at form, um, they have not built much that you can see. So it's always a bit interesting to, to see how they're doing. Their efficiency is lower, but they're more focusing on seasonal. If There's Highview in the UK who are doing liquid air energy storage, but large monolithic systems. So this combination, I think, uh, that we do um, is, is truly unique there. Thank you so much, Justin. Over to you, Matt. What about versus supercapacitor-based batteries? Supercapacitor-based batteries are on the opposite end of the spectrum. So a supercapacitor is focused on providing a lot of power in a very short time. So if you want to accelerate fast in your car, then you use capacitors. If you want to drive a, far, a long distance in your car, you would use batteries, or if you think of the energy grid, you would increasingly use long duration energy storage. So in the future energy system, we will probably still see lithium ion batteries, if not even super capacitors on the grid for these very, very short term stabilization of the grid. Somebody um, starts up a big machine in a large um, industrial facility. There you would have a supercapacitor to help you with this sudden peak of power, but then to shift large amounts of energy, that's what you need different technologies for. How do you guys compare to lithium ion in terms of cost per storage? So for instance, we invested in a supercapacitor based battery system that has smart, <laughs> basically it combines the best of uh, supercapacitors and lithium ion. So you have the same energy density, but hundred X the power density and costs about half. How do you guys come out cost what and doesn't degrade, which is the biggest problem really with lithium ion is you get a thousand cycles and then you just start to go downhill from there. So the from a cost perspective, um, like there's two aspects to that. One is, of course, at what point of scaling are we? What kind of mass manufacturing are we? Um, because nobody has scaled this technology yet. So there's a lot of low hanging fruits to reduce costs very quickly in the beginning. Um, we can very quickly reach um, cumulative costs of less than um, 100 euros um, or $100 per kilowatt hour. But the longer the duration of the project, the more we are cheaper. Because that lithium, you might pay one point. Um, so if you make it a lithium go from one hour to two hours of capacity, you might pay effectively 1.8 times as much. Versus if we increase the duration, you pay maybe 10% more or 20% more. So 
if you need, if you have a need for 12 hours, 15 hours, 18 hours, that's where all of a sudden the gap widens. Like the, the longer the duration, the bigger the gap between lithium and us. And from a, from a component level cost, um, we can reach less than 50, um, probably even less than 30 euros per kilowatt hour um, on the, on the um, energy side. Oops, um, is that uh, is that cha changing cost or that growing gap due to the degradation of the lithium-ion batteries? Is what I'm asking, because if that degradation doesn't exist and the batteries then were able to stay fully charged without any type of kind of degradation or they could last longer, then cost-wise, you guys wouldn't be improving versus lithium, would you? Or versus a uh, versus a kind of combo system. Um. It's, it's a bit different. Uh, you can imagine a lithium-ion battery as um, thinking of, okay, lithium-ion battery always contains the motor and uh, the battery of an electric car. Whereas in a supercapacitor case, you have mainly the motor and normally, unless you have a special technology that you have invested in, a tiny battery. And in our case, you have a large battery and a tiny motor. But for us, the cost to increase the battery without adjusting the motor is super low. Whereas it's lithium, you always get both combined because in an elect electrochemical cell, you can adjust how much power, how much capacity you get, but you always have the cell. So there's a fixed cost. If you want more power or more, ca or more capacity, it's always the same cost with lithium. Okay. For us, it's less cost to increase the capacity. So it's independent of the degradation. Okay. And how do you plan to go to market? Um, we have... Um, a very high pain point of uh, currently in Europe uh, on the industrial side. Uh, industrial consumers are looking left and, and right how to reduce their energy procurement costs. And that can be done with energy storage, both for their peak shaving demand, but as well for um, shifting large amounts of energy to times of where there's a lot of renewables in Europe, because that's usually where the prices are low. Um, we have um, certain leads there. We have the first pilot system, but for the scalable case, um, we are already talking with an Austrian utility um, who, with whom we are doing a feasibility study. It's a paid feasibility study to build up to seven first units um, in a renewable setting. So co-locating it with PV, with hydropower to help them generate more revenues. Because of course, for them, they are not earning money. If everybody has sun, the market prices are dropping to zero. Um, that's not interesting. But if you have a storage, all of a sudden you can make a lot more money. So... For the scalable case, we co-locate with renewables because that's a very homogeneous and, and, and scalable case. Once you understand how to put it next to a PV field, you can do that with every other PV field that you see. I'm curious, um, Justin, what challenges are you anticipating to face over the next 12 to 24 months? Um, I think from a, from from also looking back now, we are two years in the game. We have so successfully raised 1.2 million euros in pre-seed um, money to date, and around 500k in non-dilutive capital. And um, I think in the last one and a half years, especially supply chain was a big issue. We are happy now that all the parts are in and they're in the lab and they're integrated, and the system is being commissioned as we speak. But still, getting components actually delivered is a challenge. Finding the right people will be a challenge, but um, we have good cards and have so far um, succeeded there. 
um, but also, of course, then um, achieving these milestones to actually build the system and uh, achieve the economic milestones. So um, getting more contracts in, the, the, the more we have achieved on the tech side um, and to enable trust from customers, um, we will be able to sign more. But of course, it's an uphill battle as a startup with a big uh, industrial solution as a proposal to sign early on commitments from customers. Helpful. Thank you so much, Justin. What do you need to get to to be able to get those commitments from customers? Is it after the first pilot and case study, then you can start selling? Or how do you plan on really rolling that up? Or scaling the, that up? Yeah, the... Um, what we're doing now is we go directly from the lab scale um, to um, a commercial scale with our first customer. And we have that first customer already um, really close. So they are really committed. They're also invested in us in a small amount. Um, and we can build this first system at their premises, which is super valuable because that will already show in a megawatt range, okay, those folks can actually build a system in that range and it will work. What we need to answer your question directly of how do we how do we get more commitments? The sales cycles are quite long, so, so oftentimes um, customers want the, the product delivered two years, three years, five years down the road, possibly, of initial contact, um, and having the commercial traction, but then having a lot of the understanding of how to actually make money with it. That is the second big aspect that we have in house because we started with. How do you make money with energy storage? So we advise, we have a software tool in-house developed that allows to understand what is actually the business case? What is the right technology? It might not even be us, but how do you size it so that your customer makes money also in the, in, uh, depending on how the market might change? And that is really unique because most competitors that we speak with, um, they know very much about their product, but how to really make money with it that's something that not that many really understand. And that's what will open us doors because we can tell the customer, if you get this, this is how much money you will make with the system. And that is not as easy to do because um, you need to actually understand how to shift the energy in a, in a profitable way on the market. One of the potential challenges I see, everything in the world is going one of two ways. It's going Apple or Android. Either you pay premium for the things you love or the rest is toilet paper and you couldn't care what the brand is as long as it's cheap and does the job. And with energy storage, I'm pretty sure it's going to fall into the ladder of I want the cheapest, most effective solution. And if this is slightly cheaper than that, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. I'm going to switch. How do you deal with that challenge? Because for industrials, for customers, they could give excuse the French, they could give two shits what type of energy storage you use. If you're storing this by having things float, or if you're having whatever happen, or you have an anti-gravity machine, and that's how you're storing the energy, great. As long as it's cheap, I'll take it. And it's environmentally friendly, I'll take it. You said it at the end there, as long as it's environmentally friendly, as long as it doesn't have any fire hazard risks. We have talked extensively um, with Californian so, uh, community choice aggregators they can't um, procure a build lithium sometimes because of fire hazard risks. Um, if you talk about project financing um, with the big guys like Allianz Global Investors, et cetera, um, who are at the other end of the financial um, pipeline that fee, like pays for these projects, they need solid ESG criteria in their projects now. And you need to have those sorted out. Now, we focus on being cheap. We focus on being more flexible. Because you might be cheap, 
But if you build a system and that is not movable, you have it at this location and it might have been cheap in the beginning, but we offer the customer to actually go from a CapEx perspective to an OpEx perspective. And that can be a big unlock for many who don't want or can't spend the big CapEx because they can just get a subscription for a couple of years on energy storage. And then for us, it's okay if they don't want it or need it because we can always ship it to a different customer. So driving down costs, scaling up so that we have more scale of production, reducing costs that way and um, providing more flexibility to customers plus being a safer and ESG um, compatible product, I think is then what will also help us defend it. Okay, Pratiba, any any last points? Yeah, I'm just curious about um, your funding round right now. You said that you have about 1.2 million committed. So I'm curious how, uh, what's the timeline to close? What are you looking for? And uh, who's, what are the terms? So um, we are we are we are in the middle of the fundraising. Um, we have talked uh, with investors. We have seen good interest in it. Um, I think one of the things with us is that we are still early stage overall. Still, um, we need we need to get over this this uh, capital a mountain of capital in a way um, to unlock really the the, the scalable case and. Um, I think from a timing perspective, it's very soon. So in a, like early Q1 next year, um, where we will close. And from a terms perspective, um, we believe that uh, the market sets the terms. So um, we're happy to discuss that with investors directly. Thanks. Thanks. Which means the longer you wait, the worse your terms get. <laughs> Unfortunately, just the way the market's going. Justin, thank you. Thank you so much for pitching. Thanks for presenting what you guys are doing. It's a very cool solution. Glad to have it here on the Startup Tank here. We got to throw a little plug in. Guys, this is the Startup Tank. Thank you very much. If this is your first time tuning in, oh no, I just clicked the wrong button. Oops. Well, we're going to have to get Pratiba back. I just bumped her out of the, the meeting on accident by instead of getting rid of the spotlight. Um, well, now I'm going to need to talk a little bit more. So this is, this is the Startup Tank where we have the world's most interesting and... Um, action-oriented climate startups on. We do pre-seed to Series A, and we try to make sure that the companies, they move the world forward. That's what we're looking for at Forward VC, our climate syndicate and uh, climate accelerator. I'm talking a little bit because I got to get Pratiba back in here quick. But if you guys want to learn more about us and what we do, thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply and to learn more about our partner in crime program, because all VCs say they're value-add, and generally speaking, that means they say they're value add, and that's kind of the extent of that. Or they're really taking in big cohorts and for accelerators. They have deadlines. They're not really uh, reliable. Or hey, guess what? Uh, our our cohort just ended, but uh, in six months we'll have the next one. So if you put your company and your life on hold for six months, then we'd love to work together. That seems like the wrong way to do things. So we're reinventing that. If you want to learn more about us and how we do that and why we do that, forward.vc slash accelerator. And now I would uh, do another ad while I'm waiting for Pratiba to hopefully get back in here. Um, so the the startup tank, we're brought to you guys by the Eugen Agency. If you, if you haven't heard, they're the go-to agency for climate companies that are looking to not only have great branding and sales, but also really be able to crush it on their raise and with looking professional for 
for large-scale customers like those industrials that we're talking about. If you want to learn more about them and what they do, forward.vc slash design, that's D-E-S-I-G-N, obviously, to get more details. Companies pitching here, we'll have a, our startup of the night, we'll get 5,000 in credits towards uh, design services from them. And all the other presenting companies will get a we'll get a special feature one-on-one -on -one kind of unlocking the brand and trying to help them with positioning for for racing their round on top of that we're brought to you guys by carda and valbon carda is probably the largest player in the venture space now Valbon's the service we love for setting up spvs uh, if you haven't checked them out make sure you do forward.vc slash carda that's c-a-r-t-a for more details and to set up your SPV or to manage your cap table or whatever you need uh, on the, the startup or venture or ESOP or employee management side, Carta's got you covered. It looks like I'm gonna have to jump to the next company now. I really hope I really hope Pratiba comes back. Sorry about the sorry about the glitch on my side, guys. I would hand things over now to uh um, Sala and Sonal from Solaris, who are trying to, uh, yeah, reinvent the way we do solar by making it a little bit more flexible, pun intended. Thank you, Matt. I'll share my screen with you all. Um, are you able to see my screen? Yes, we see your screen. Awesome. Imagine if you could capture the sun's energy from anywhere, from windows, building facades, electric vehicles, or cell phone cases. However, the technology we use today is not suitable. We need a new material and technology to fulfill the requirements for those applications. Let me explain. Solar cells consist of multiple layers around a semiconductor. The most popular semiconductor used today is silicon. In order to create the next generation of solar cells, dozens of tier one companies are trying to replace silicon with a perovskite using an ink printing process. However, no one has been able to commercialize perovskite-based solar cells as of today. At Solera, we enable the photovoltaic industry to mass-produce perovskite solar cells with a reliable perovskite ink, which has a much higher energy conversion efficiency and a more affordable, simpler, and shorter value chain compared to silicon. Also, perovskite has potential for double the energy conversion efficiency of silicon. A unique use case of our technology is to allow IoT devices, like phones and smartwatches, to capture energy from indoor light. Imagine that in the near future, any device that uses a battery will be able to recharge on indoor or outdoor lights. This is a $768 billion market. It's a huge market opportunity, and our goal is to own the market by 2027. Our solar ink has a long shelf life, provides high efficiency, and is compatible with different scalable manufacturing processes used by the industry. There are only two other companies marketing perovskite ink. However, their ink is only suitable for research and small size coating processes. Our competitors are facing a significant challenge. The current perovskite ink has only a couple of days shelf life. This means that it's not suitable for mass production and is not commercially viable. At this time, our ink is the only one to pass the three month stability mark. Our perovskite ink is the first step of a larger project to develop in the future our own flexible light solar panels that can be installed on any surface, such as electric vehicles or phone cases. We have multiple revenue streams that include the sales of our solar ink, consulting with customers, licensing and royalties from our manufacturing process, and also in the future we may plan on selling our own perovskite film too. 
We have a comprehensive sales process where our sales executives are working on 150 leads on a weighted sales pipeline of over $4 million. As of today, we have sent our ink to 19 customers around the globe. Today, we have signed a letter of intent with our partner, Bright Solar, a statement to off work with Koyaku in the US and Zara in the UK, and an ink distribution agreement with ITEC in South Korea. This is an actual prototype of a perovskite solar cell made by our partner, Bright Solar. They are a large well-established European company. We are currently working with them to provide them with perovskite ink that will help them scale to mass production by the end of this year. We have a comprehensive IP strategy that includes protecting 44 innovations. Our patent filings include in-licensing, granted, and pending patents. Our patent applications cover our core technology, future product iterations, and the adjacent market space. Customers are excited about our product. Solera has won multiple competitions, including Canada's Clean 50 Top Projects, Top Startup Canada, Douglas 10 to Watch. We have been featured as emerging markets by the investment community in BC, and Foresight named Solera one of Canada's most investable tech companies. Let me tell you about our team. One Dr. Minute, Sahar one. Sam invented a fabrication process for 10 firm solar cells. Our co-founder and CEO, Fabian De, uh, De La Fuente, is a five-time serial entrepreneur with over 100 patents under his belt. And our chief development officer has tw over 25 years of experience in scaling coding technologies, having worked with Zara, Creo, and Toy America. Just for our ink, we forecast $34 million cumulative revenue by January of 2027 and our EBITDA to be positive by 2024. Next year, we are projecting $300,000 as a result of our solar ink sales. And in 2025, we will activate new revenue streams from licensing or manufacturing process. We recently closed our pre-seed round. Today, we have raised over $7 million in equity and non-elusive funding. After this round, we're planning a seed round to start in Q2 of 2023 to scale up our manufacturing process. We are planning to exit by acquisition in five to six years. Potential acquirers in the market include current players uh, in Paroxcat market, as well as companies Time in the up. industry. Thank you. Pratiba, I'm so sorry about kicking you out. I was trying to add, uh, I was trying to no worries. Change, the, change the presenting <laughs> mode. Thank you so much for presenting, Salah, and sharing what you guys are doing with uh, Solaris. I will probably handle most of these questions. And if you have anything you want to add there on top as well, then go for it, Pratiba. But my, my first question for you would be, how large do you see the actual Perscovite and Solar Inc. market being and why? Uh, so right now we're seeing it at, uh, like the overall market uh, is going to be around 700 billion by 2027. But for perovskites, uh, I think, and what we're trying to do, I think the overall is going to be uh, about 8 billion by 2027. And the reason is this includes any flexible solar panels. Uh, currently, there exists a lot of uh, other alternatives to silicon, but they're not as efficient and they're not as scalable. And what we're doing here is we're providing a technology that could be more efficient, cheaper, and allows for these like innovative applications that silicon doesn't. Uh, so it'll easily uh, take over that market. What we're aiming for is uh, to have a sum of uh, 325 million. Okay, understood. 
And you're planning on building and manufacturing the panels yourself then as kind of the next stage? Yeah, so step one right now is we make the ink and we sell it to manufacturers who are already doing flexible panels maybe and rigid panels uh, because you can make rigid panels with the ink. Uh, it's just replacing the silicon with the ink. And then uh, the next stage is developing our own manufacturing process and then licensing that to those manufacturers or new uh, players that want to go into the solar industry. And then after that, we might develop our own solar film that can be flexible and has some uh, translucency uh, features to it. Uh, so that's uh, the plan. So you think you can develop better solar panels than the folks who've been doing it for a while? Uh, yes, we, we think we can because this is a new technology and uh, we're uh, uh, the ones who are like pioneering uh, this. And you're market. targeting a five to six year exit? Uh, yes, that's the plan. Why is that the plan? Uh, so we're hoping uh, to target that uh, because we'll have uh, enough revenue to be valued at a billion dollars, hopefully by then. And uh, we'll create all of uh, returns for investors. And hopefully we're expecting to get bought out by one of those large players that have been doing solar for a while. Uh, and hopefully they can uh, continue scaling the technology further. How big can you build this in five to six years? That's one one challenge I see is whenever founders say, we, we, we want to build this and exit, it's kind of like saying, I want to marry this girl and then have some new options in six or seven years. It's not going to turn into anything super serious. Oh, well, we're taking it very seriously. It's just uh, we're being a bit more, uh, I think, uh, realistic with the big players out there. They've been around, they do a lot of different technologies involved in uh, a lot of different uh, areas of the uh, value chain for solar. Uh, so we think uh, it is better to work with them on developing this technology. And of course, if in the future we see a capability to uh, do our own thing and uh, grow this to something even bigger, we will go with that. Uh, but uh, so far, most of our advancements have been uh, were, uh, the result of us working with the partners on testing the technology. And that's where we're foreseeing going. Uh, we'll continue testing it with different uh, players. And uh, eventually, we will be testing it with one of those potential acquirers. Uh, and they will uh, uh, obviously want to uh, uh, express interest and in maybe acquiring us. So we're just being uh, a bit more realistic there. Pratiba, do you have any questions from what you were able to see? Sorry about that again. No, no worries. And I was literally at the tail end of this presentation. So apologies if uh, you've covered this. So I just curious, what are you looking to, what are your key milestones that you're looking to achieve over the next 12 to 18 months, leave alone the next five, six years of the success that you're anticipating? 12 to 18 months, what are the key milestones you're looking to uh, see as success? Uh, so I would say uh, our key milestones uh, for that time period would be to uh, have helped our partner uh, Bright Solar uh, create those uh, scalable rigid panels 
partner with uh, another company, which we're having discussions now and evaluating uh, some options uh, that makes uh, flexible panels as well and uh, take that to scale with them too. So they're able to create uh, industry standard uh, size scalable uh, flexible panels uh, using our ink and also to develop our own manufacturing process by the end of those 18 months. I hope that answers your question, uh, Artiva. No, that's helpful. Thank you, Saleh. And for, the, for that timeline that you have, your goal for 2027, how much capital do you need to reach that and to reach scale? How much more are you going to have to raise? Uh, so we're expecting uh, having to raise anywhere between, uh, from now to 2027, uh, anywhere between uh, 30 to uh, uh, 40 million, I think. Uh, as, as you know, it's very uh, uh, extensive uh, like research that we have to do, and uh, we're hoping to uh, have a positive that by 2020, by end of 2023, uh, or early 2024. Uh, so hopefully we'll start matching that and uh, scaling. But just to take it to the next level, uh, I think those would be the numbers. Uh, so a seed round of 5 million, then Series A, maybe 10 million, and uh, maybe a 20 million Series B. And if you fail, why will it be? Uh, if we fail, I think uh, the main reason would be not being able to get the funding needed, uh, just because we're a bit more deep tech and it does take uh, more uh, cash to uh, help us uh, uh, develop the technology and prove it out. Uh, but I, I will say, as I mentioned, uh, none of our competitors have been able to stabilize this ink in the past 10 years for more than a week. And we've already achieved over three months stability. And, and this is for the ink to be applied in, on the panels. Uh, once it's in, in the panels and encapsulated, it lasts for a much longer time period. Uh, so we've been on the trajectory for success so far. Um, in this industry. So we were very hopeful. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks for taking the time to present. Thanks for everything that you guys are doing. It's clearly, it's clearly necessary. We need more, we need more renewable capacity. I almost removed you again, Pratiba. Geez, I need to no, make sure I'm, I'm good, careful good. with the buttons, careful with <laughs> the buttons. We'll just do this the easy way. If you guys haven't subscribed yet, by the way, hit that subscribe bell on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, we're also on all the major podcasting platforms. It'd be great if you guys subscribed, left a review, even just to help spike the algorithms a little bit. We all know how the platforms work. Spiking the algorithms is a great way to get in front of more climate companies, more climate investors, and to get more great climate companies like these guys a little bit more exposure with the guys who might just write them a check we've been doing a lot of energy uh we did sun sun's hot well now why don't we go uh why don't we go on the cold side of things this one's uh this one's a cool one uh chill tech and alex alex do you want to take things away and tell us how you're making uh making the world a little cooler without uh almost energy free it's uh it's pretty interesting stuff what you guys are doing alex um you ready to uh you ready to rock Yeah, let me let me pull the rest of us out of here and make sure it's just you. And then you should be able to share your screen. Let me know when you're ready, and then we can start the five minutes and you can uh can you, you can take it away. Okay. Have you ever thought about the impact of something we all take for granted, cooling and refrigeration, or perhaps the impact of having to do without it? The world is facing a triple crisis today. 
thereby driving further adoption. There are carbon market price scenarios, here you see on the right of the graph, where such revenue really becomes the primary driver, although this is not our base case and we are not formally including it in our model. As for cast, we intend to roll out this visible where the user pays a uh, monthly use fee, assuming they're bankable. As you probably know, hardware servitization generally doubles the EBITDA margins over time. Um, we are midway through a £1.5 million Series A round now and have just hired key production and commercial staff. We are market ready with our static chillers and soon to start field testing the TRU with our future customers in Africa under the IFC's Tech Emerge program. We'd be delighted to field any questions and to engage with viewers who would like to find out more. Thank you very much. Awesome. It looks very cool, pun intended. So in terms of uh, first questions while bringing uh, Pratiba back in here, what's your story? Why are you doing this? How did you get into this? Well, it's a family story, actually. Um, the uh, chairman and CEO is one of my brothers. He's got a long, long history in, in um, startups, mostly in the TMC space, and also a background in the long distance past in corporate finance. I'm a historically uh, a commodity trader, agricultural commodities. So I've been involved in the agricultural supply chain um, across the world, really, but mostly in uh, Eastern and Western Europe um, for 22 years before branching out into startup land. Um, this is my second foray into um, upcycling and, re and re recycling uh, and waste reduction. I had a, a startup in the um, insect protein space. Uh, upcycling fruit and vegetable waste. A bit early to the party there, unfortunately. But the, that's where I got interested in the carbon market. And I really like the, the intersection of uh, commodity markets, which carbon is becoming, and, uh, in, and carbon finance, which is going to help drive this um, the decarbonisation and really catalyse the cold chain in the, in the global south. Why did you choose the cold chain? Why cold delivery versus, for instance... The, the most of the world is starting to want to put in AC and HVAC units, potentially having the your oven power your air conditioner at home so that India doesn't have to suffer through terrible summers without uh, AC. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's in, it's one of our verticals here that, that you see, and I'm still sharing my screen, which I think I am, maybe not. Building cooling is, was the original use case of this technology. In fact, it was AC. Um, but actually, the, the, the catalyst to get us to focus on the cold chain was actually brought by the IFC, the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank, who approached us. Um, this was in the throes of COVID, actually, and said, hey, <clears throat> we've seen your technology. We think it can be put to very good use in the cold chain, um, static cold, cold rooms, cold stores, and um, more importantly, perhaps in the future for refrigerated transportation. So it was really at their instigation that we went away over COVID when we weren't, weren't able to actually physically install any projects anyway because you couldn't travel. Um, went away, um, adapted the technology to, to a lower temperature range than aircon, and hence, hence the deployment and the focus in the cold chain. Now that is, if you think about it, with, with what I just described, the cold chain is really where you get the most bang for your buck from an impact perspective mm -hmm. due to those levels of food waste and all the societal uh, 
um, benefits that cascade from bringing the cold chain where there isn't any at the moment. What percent of food waste is actually attributable to not having su- sufficient or requisite cold storage in uh, in the logistics system versus it's just taking too long or people not eating the food or something else happening that it goes bad? Well, there's several. There, it's a good question. There are several um, stages in the supply chain in the cold, the cold, the fresh produce cold chain. And there's, we're, we're in the pre-consumer stage, the ex-farm to market stage, right? And there are intermediate, there are intermediate stage, sub-stages in that, in that supply chain. So we are, with our static chillers and the refrigerated transportation, we're looking to facilitate a hub-and-spoke model for the cold chain. And then, you know, the, the very, uh, very up the, the start of the supply chain, the ex-farm level, there are other solutions which are complementary. Um, at harvest time, food, the produce does need to be pre-cooled to get the harvest heat out. So if it's been, been harvested in the, in the heat of the day, you really need, it's very, it's very key to get, um, get that temperature down, not, not to refrigerated levels, but just to get the, the, uh, the say 30 to 20 degrees level. And there are very, there are many um, very good and very deployable solutions out there, mostly deploying solar solar boxes at the farm level. So we intervene after that to get it from the farm to the aggregation point, then in the aggregation point, so the um, the cold store, right? And then there's probably another. Usually there's another transport leg, either to domestic market, and we would hope to have more cold stores using our technology in the main food fresh produce market. And then if it's if we're if we're serving an export market, the export hubs, um, say in Tanzania for uh, Kenya rather, for example, there are there are already being built state of the art um, um, cold cold hubs at the export points, so Mombasa, uh, Nairobi, etc. Is the bigger opportunity with trucks or with uh, ships? Uh, ships we 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 think there is an opportunity with ships, but we haven't tackled it yet. There's definitely because there's a lot of obviously there are huge huge engines burning um, marine fuel, uh, which which produce a lot of waste heat. But no, we haven't tackled that yet. The big the big opportunity it's both. It's a hub and spoke model. You need the static and you need the refrigerated transportation. In terms of customer or prospective customer feedback, I would say that the level of excitement is higher for the refrigerated transportation leg um, because it's, you know, you're reducing the, the reason there isn't any is because no one can afford the, the fuel. 9,000 litres of diesel a year is a lot of money um, and the supply chain is just, is just set up such that the ex-farm price is depressed reflecting the level of loss which is, which is inherent in ambient uh, transportation. So if we, we take that out we're refrigerating it for nothing. It's a no-brainer for any merchants of fresh produce who's, who's just by, by just sticking our units on, a, on an insulated flatbed truck is immediately getting 20, 30, 40% more produce to market. It's an, it's an immediate boost to its bottom line. So why are you still raising? Why is it not automatic already? 
miles and miles. You well, had the I IFC that, talks. That, I'm sure you, you alluded to it earlier. I think uh, even at the best of times, um, startup fundraising is not a simple process and it hasn't gotten easier in recent months. But we have, we have raised, historically, before this round, we had raised about £2 million, mostly equity, a bit of convertible debt. And we're, as I said, we're halfway through this current Series A round. So we raised uh, roughly uh, £600,000. So we're about halfway through this. this oh, that's a really small Series A. Well, the, the, no, the nomenclature we were advised to call it a Series A. I don't know what you call it. Okay, one point two, a one point two million is not a Series A that I know of. You can Pretty best perhaps label it as pre-Series A for now. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Matt. And just a quick question, Alex, as you think about your regions of focus, these are, I mean, like, I'm just curious, what countries are you focusing right now, and how are you looking to ramp out? Yeah, good question. I mean, there, there's a there's a blend. I mean, we we're we're testing at the initial focus, which is again directed by the IFC. Uh, they they partnered us partnered us up with um, technology adopters in West Africa. The one is a Pan African uh, logistics company who wants to get into the refrigerated transportation. It's currently has just a, a regular <clears throat> ambient uh, temperature logistics company, and the other is a is a um, grain and fertilizer handler who wants wants to get into cold stores and has process power on site, shedding heat, which we can use. Um, so that's Africa. So we initial focus is, is Africa, Western East. Um, and we've just hired a commercial general manager for, um, for the African continent. Um, but equally, and again, I was concentrating on that more from an impact perspective, because that's obviously where the impact is, uh, is concentrated. But we're, meanwhile, we're also going to do a, um, a trial with a leading uh, temporary and lease power operator in the UK uh, on their hydrogen gen sets in the new year. So that, if you like, is with an eye to future-proofing the technology in the unlikely event that um, diesel disappears. Um, which I don't think anyone truly believes, but you know, we can. The point is, we can use. We're trying to be heat source agnostic. Right? Yeah. If you've got hydrogen um, engines, we can use them. Hydrogen gensets. We can use pyrolysis um, exhaust. We can. We think we can use biomass burners as well. We haven't actually done it yet. But we're trying to be heat source agnostic to cover all bases. And the missing, the missing link in that respect. Excuse me. My dog just wandered in. Um, the missing link in that respect is solar, um, and we haven't we haven't figured that out yet. But we do we we think we know how to do it, but we haven't done the R and D yet. But that that's really the that will be the the holy grail covering all bases. For example, in a microgrid, any microgrid then could be plugged in to plug people into any microgrid, which all. Almost all of which still have a significant part of diesel today. What about data so, centers? Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, just one question before uh, Matt. I love the question on data centers. Um, just curious. I mean, we are talking about quite a few local players in some of these markets that can really focus on addressing this pain point. What makes your technology different and and this speaks to the patent aspect of it like what is um, the unique 
uh, competitive edge that you present? Well, there, is, there are several aspects to the patents, such as they are at the moment, and there will be more patents in the future, I believe, um, mm-hmm. as new products are, are developed, notably the truck unit, which despite being being the, the same design as the static chiller is, is a distinct product, so it probably, probably has some patentable aspects to it as well. Um, but, but it's the direct capture of the waste heat. As I said, um, I was rattling through it a bit, but I, I alluded to it in the in my run through, uh, um, we're going, we're capturing the exhaust, plugging straight into, if you like, a thermal box, which is the generator, which the, the provides the power um, for the heat um, um, heat exchange. Uh, so that's one aspect. Other large scale industrial chillers, um, they all go through steam or hot water to do that. Uh, so that's one aspect, and then there's the internal workings of the of our absorption process with multiple um, multiple heat exchanges and it's the overall thermal efficiency of the unit which is pretty high and then you know water and then it's also air cooled which is another aspect which is quite novel um most of water cooled which imply having a water tower which obviously increases your your um, infrastructure footprint quite significantly and obviously would make transportation using that pretty impractical yeah okay and what's the pricing model like how how is your business model panning well, out at this yeah i mean there, there, there's a basic well, our financial model is, is a simple b2b sales on the financial yeah. model but there are two overlays to that uh, which we have not integrated um and again i alluded to them in my run through one is one is Certification. So removing the barriers to adoption of capex, just turning it into a monthly fee. Obviously, that requires balance sheets or an SPV. It requires bankability. So it's not something we can we can say, hey, we're going to here's, here's exactly the cash flows from this certification model, which we're going to do. We have to start with B two B simple sales, build a balance sheet, build bankability, and then. Um, and meanwhile, cultivate counterparties who can who can provide that funding, and there are some. We've been talking to them already. Uh, so that's one overlay: the CAS, like cooling as a service, and then the other one is carbon finance, um, which really can. I, mean, I don't want to get too excited, but depending on what happens to the carbon price in the future, it could really become the tail wags dog of our business, um, because. You know, it's got a very nice cumulative effect here because each of our each of our units, you know, we think have a seven to ten year lifespan. So as we sell more and more or deploy more and more on balance sheets, they keep on chugging away, keep on avoiding carbon, which is monetizable, and obviously that the vast majority of that revenue um, gets recycled into the business in order to drive drive adoption. Right, you have different differentiated pricing in, in, in the global south where you are generating those carbon credit revenues versus in the developed world where you've just got a higher sticker price because you don't have any carbon revenue, right? Yeah. But that's all well and good. That's that's the function of carbon finance. That's what should what it should be doing. Okay. Thank you so much, Malix. Uh, Matt, you were talking about data centers. Yeah, data centers need a ton of energy. They get real hot, but they actually have to stay pretty cold. Could this not be something for data centers? It could be. 
Um, my brother's the expert on this. He has some experience with data sensors from the previous life. But um, from what I understand, at least in the um, in the West, if you like, in the developed world, the the liability that you have to enter into when you have a data center cooling contract is just simply too dangerous for a small company like us. I.e., if it goes, if anything goes wrong, the liability is quite um, uncapped. <laughs> um, yeah. There is, interestingly, there, there a large data center project has come our way in Nigeria currently. So we are, we are, we have our ears open to it, but it's it's not an immediate focus. Understood. And like you, like you've said before, and like we've said, there are definitely competitors on the market. Uh, I asked this question before, but I'll ask it again. If you fail, why will it be? Did you ask me? Oh, you asked someone else that. Right? No, I asked someone else that. I'm just curious what your well, what your answer is. Funny, funny enough, the, in the in the global south, the um, the biggest sort of existential risk to us is is wholesale societal collapse, such that people aren't running their generators or or trucks, so there's no waste heat to be had. If there's no waste heat to be had because it's, things are so bad, and actually that, that, by the way, is a little bit the case in parts of Nigeria at the moment, and I think other parts of Africa soon, as the, you know, these, if the energy prices stay, stay high, particularly high, that is a risk. But then, you know, is the whole world going to stop? Probably not. Uh, and as I said, we do have these verticals which are applicable in the developed world as well. So we don't, we obviously don't want to do that, but if we were forced to, we could uh, refocus away again from the developing world, but it would be a yeah, shame. How much capital do you need to get to hit scale? Well, I mentioned a, I mentioned a very impressive uh, TAM of um, 4 million refrigerated vehicles. Obviously, we're not, we're not, we're not pretending with that we're going to take over that, to take over the world of refrigerated transportation. Um, our, our, our five, six year plan has us selling at the end of it 10,000 units a year, um, roughly split 50 50 between the static chillers and the refrigerated truck units. Um, in order to become self-sustaining, self um, um, according to our model, we need, we will need, after this round, we'll need about six million pounds of total funding. Now that's not pure equity, that's any source. So I hope it will be a, a significant part of that will be carbon pre-finance um, and hopefully some debt funding for a CAS, uh, mm -hmm. CAS vehicle. Or grants even. Awesome. Or grants. Well, Alex, thanks for sharing. I want to I wanna move things along now to our last company of the night. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, if you guys are tuning in, it's your first time to startuptank.com for more about us and what we do and to apply to future sessions. We do this every two weeks. And I run Forward VC. We're an early stage climate accelerator. We invest in companies that move the world forward. And we do it in a pretty unconventional way. If you want to learn more about us and what we do, it's just forward, the number four, ward.vc investing in companies that move the world forward. And I think Madison's definitely doing that with Mount. I was super skeptical when I initially saw the saw the pitch in the deck and I was very impressed when I got deeper into it. Do you want to do you want to take things away and talk about the uh 
the Airbnb of amenities, so to speak, Madison? Happy to, yeah. Um, let me share my screen. Perfect. Is that working for everyone? Cool. I'll jump right in then. Thanks for having me. Um, my name's Maddie. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Mount. And essentially, we're a software platform that allows you to rent anything at any time to anyone. Now, the shared economy is massive, and that was a really broad statement. So where Mount decided to root ourselves was in the travel industry and specific with, specifically within the Airbnb market. And it's really the fact that amenity-based revenue and really other revenue streams are really hard to tap into. For example, uh, your classic Airbnb host is making 99% of their revenue directly from bookings. So that means they don't really have the opportunity to capitalize on the guests when they're staying at their property. Um, and this was really hard fact to come to terms with during COVID-19 when these hosts lost 65% of their bookings and they could no longer run a profitable business. So Mount dug into the problem a little more and understands now that travelers are currently paying for upsells. 83% of the worldwide travel community is actively seeking out these experiences, these fun things to do when you travel, these local experiences, and they're paying for them to the tune of $9.2 billion. So that's how much is currently spent every year by these travelers, just for amenities, for experiences, activities. And that's all the stuff the host really can't get access to. So the Mount solution, our platform, is what we've created to give these hosts access to that revenue. We can take essentially everything else they own other than the house, and we turn it into a rentable amenity for travelers. So we simply put on a GPS tracker QR code onto the amenity, take a golf cart, for example, um, a kayak, a paddleboard, you name it. It becomes a rentable amenity with our technology. And then when the guest shows up, they download the Mount app and they can see everything they can possibly rent and they can rent it within the app. So the reason why Mount is so unique and is caught fire in this industry is for three reasons. Um, first of all, we have a transactional app. So currently the way an Airbnb host, a short-term rental host would do this if they wanted to, is they could put a bike on their property and try and offer it to their guests. Uh, but they would have to either ask you for a cash, cash compensation, which is hard because a lot of these hosts never greet you in person, or they'd have to ask you what your Venmo is and trust that you pay them. So Mount created a payment solution within our app so that the guests can do it on site. We also created a custom built insurance policy. So this is a huge reason why hosts don't do this themselves. And this insurance policy covers all of all of the injury liability. So if you list a bike and someone hurts themselves via a Mount rental, that part of it is covered. That insurance policy is impossible to get as an individual, which is why Airbnb hosts can't do this. Or if they do luck out and get through the process, they're spending $100,000 a year for that policy to rent one bike, and they'll never see a profit. <laughs> our last really game changer with Mount is our GPS tracking component. So everything a host lists on our platform is GPS tracked. So they know where it's going, when it's coming back, and in what condition. So that way they can have a peace of mind if they're listing a $20,000, $30,000 golf cart, they know when it's coming back and how that guest is treating it. So the market is actually quite massive. This is a market breakdown based on amenities and the revenue they generate. So the initial market we're starting is within the United States, a $2.5 billion market for Mount. And when you open it up globally, looking at $115 billion. And that's just within the short-term rental industry. You'll see later why Mount is so unique. Um, our business model is quite interesting. We uh, take money from two customers. We charge $15 a month per host 
to the host per amenity. So a SaaS fee essentially, and they get access to the insurance, the payment tools and all the value I just mentioned. And then on top of that, we add a 20% service fee to the rental. So if the host puts $10 an hour, the guest will rent it for 12. And that's where our fee is coming from. Now, the biggest objection we've gotten so far is that the Airbnb market is, is uh, dispersed. There's 7 million hosts worldwide. How on earth are we going to find them all? So we have two points of attack. One minute our, warning. Yeah, I got you. Um, our first is our social media influencers. So these people teach hundreds of thousands of hosts how to do what they've done because they're quite successful. And we got in contact with a few, went viral in a Facebook group, and actually got 10,000 properties signed up on our waitlist in the last few months. That encompasses 46 different countries, proving Mount is a global needed solution. Now, our larger scalable strategy has to do with the software's tech stack already in our industry, Airbnb being one of them, but hundreds of companies beneath that. We integrate with them, and that's how we get access to our 7 million properties and hosts globally. At a flip of a switch, they all get instant access to list amount amenities. So we are going after a uh, massive industry, starting with hospitality, but as it turns out, every piece of private property needs rentable amenities. So going into office, multifamily, and retail. So thank you so much and happy to answer any questions. Awesome. And thank you for sharing, Madison. It's a, it's a super interesting. I know this would super definitely have been helpful for our trip to Greece. And I'm pretty sure everybody can can relate here. Let me uh, pull in Pratiba and myself. And Pratiba, do you want to take things away? What yeah. questions do you have for Mount? Firstly, thank you so much, Madison. Great pitch. Um just and and love the whole reuse economy uh, angle. I'm curious about your theory of change or impact. Could you speak to a bit about uh, what is your vision for the kind of environmental impact you are looking to achieve through uh, or social impact, if you will, through your uh, company? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, so really the Mount Vision, and you'll actually see this if you go on our website, is in the next five years, getting this travel demographic of people to really travel with a backpack and then rent everything they need in destination from their purse to a ball gown they might need for a wedding uh, to the bike. So really everything. And that way we can reduce this term we've coined called single use travel, where you know we were actually in Hawaii for three months and we had uh, the local travel economy showing up and then purchasing those uh, inflatable floaties, using them for five days and then throwing them away. And the cycle continued from there. Yeah. And it really is dependent on each market, but that single use travel uh, is kind of destroying, I guess, the environment. So that's what we're trying to get people away from doing. Great. And curious on how, what makes you and your co-founder the unique folks to be able to tackle this problem? Another good one. So um, it, I guess it didn't come across in the five minute pitch because limited time, but I have been doing Mount since I was 12 years old. So I started on this journey. It was a bike lock company. And then with a string of eight to nine pivots over the last 12 ish years kind of have landed in this amazing shared economy uh, where there was an actual problem. I would say bike locks, not so much. Um, but because of that and that journey where I actually met my co-founder a few years ago and we've kind of been persistent uh, and on this journey, that would make us kind of unique to do this and solve this problem. And then along the way, have met many industry experts that are now backing Mount, working for Mount. We're a full-time team of 10 right now um, to kind of grow this and take it to the next level. Love, love the passion here, Madison. And I, I know of the space uh, 
pretty well. Uh, we've made a couple of investments in the reuse mm-hmm. space. Just curious about how are you thinking about the comps within the market that are attempting a version of this, right? Like you have some that are looking at parents, you know, the moms, the the uh, sp- the use for children's uh uh, equipment and, and amenities. Some are looking at the office space and looking at how you could be reusing furniture and the others. Like what, where do you play and what makes, what's your closest comparable in the market? Yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a great question because the shared economy has been around for, you know, upwards of 12 years now. I think in the re- recent years, it's become quite popular and more widely adopted. So people are willing to rent things from each other. But when we look at our competitors, a lot of them have already failed and don't exist anymore. Uh, one's one called Ruckify, another called Fat Llama, which is actually based in the UK. Um, they took the very opposite approach of Mount, where they decided to tackle the entire shared economy at once. So basically rooting it within communities, which is a very vague word, and you could rent a saw, a bike, like literally anything. And they failed because they didn't root that shared economy in something. And it's kind of, you know, you're not going to get enough people that need to rent a saw and then also a bike. And it's just, you're not going to get enough usage. Uh, The reason Mount is quite different is because we rooted it in travel within a shared economy that already existed, which is Airbnb. So what we found is these travelers show up and they want to rent a bike, they're doing it already, we're just making it a lot more convenient. So our utilization is pretty high. Um, so in that sense, I'm not too worried about our competitors. And then if you look directly in the short-term rental industry, we're actually the only company doing what we're doing right now rooted in technology. The other shared economies uh, have to facilitate it with people. So if you want to list you know, your um, lawnmower for rent, you have to be there to facilitate it. And that's not a full-time job. With Mount, everything is self-service. So you can list that lawnmower and you don't have to be there when it's being rented. Um, so a lot of differences. Got it. Um, and the last question before I just hand it over to Matt, um, over the next 12 to 18 months, what are your key milestones you're looking to achieve? So we are in the tail end of closing our proper seed raise. So we were raising two, became oversubscribed. Now we're closing 3 million. Uh, we have about 500,000 left. Closing that by the end of this year and then using that money, we have a few key hires we want to make with those milestones. Um, So one being a customer success kind of head that can build that team out, really building our sales team out because our software is in a place where it's ready to be utilized. Um, And over the next 12 to 18 months, really growing our revenue, hitting anywhere from four to 8,000 amenities on the platform that are live and being used, getting us in a position where we can raise a solid Series A, um, potentially hitting a million dollars in transaction volume every month on the platform. That's kind of our North Star. Uh, And really proving out within this kind of smaller four to 8,000 amenities that Mount is a profitable business model. We can raise that Series A and then just really grow from there. Thank you, Madison. Over to you, Matt. Are you a business or an Airbnb feature? Uh, I would say 100% of business. And I, uh, we like to say that we're finishing what Airbnb started. They they started to do this and then kind of gave up due to COVID because they had to cut back on headcount. Are you worried that they will then implement what you guys are doing once they start to have things running a bit smoother at the Airbnb headquarters? Um, no. And there's a few reasons. Uh, one of our investors is General Catalyst. So we have pretty close ties to Airbnb as it is because they were early investors there. Um 
through a lot of research and conversations, Brian, you know, the founder of uh, Airbnb, mm -hmm. his grand vision was to incorporate this. And as you just mentioned, they tried and failed with Airbnb experiences. The reason they failed so miserably, in my opinion, is that they didn't tie the two platforms together. So if you rented an Airbnb, you kind of had to go do your own research and figure out what an experience was you should be. And then they didn't vet any of the experiences. Like I did one in Portugal, thought I was getting a local for a bike experience. And turns out he was, you know, fresh from Hungary and had never been to Portugal before. So it was kind of a, a weird experience. Um, so they lost a lot of credibility. The reason they're not going to continue down that path and they're not going to do what Mount is doing is because Mount comes down to being asset management. The goal is to have over 100,000 amenities on our platform, handling that customer service and making sure it's a, a humming business. Airbnb doesn't want to take on the management of 100,000 assets when they're already have, working with 7 million hosts and properties. Um, so they're going to stick with their bread and butter, which is properties and that growth. We're going to stick with ours, hopefully grow together. We have a partnership with them in the works. Um, but I don't see them doing what we're doing. <laughs> Can you get General Catalyst to connect you to uh, what's his name as an what's in it as an advisor? Brian. Yeah, if you can get them inbred into the company, that would be a good way for them to either eventually acquire you guys or hopefully not knock you off. <laughs> exactly, and what I've done too is I took it a step further. So Airbnb has four or five main competitors: Airbnb, Hopper, uh, VRBO, and then um, Booking.com. They're all kind of racing to market to figure out who can get the best share. I pit them all against each other. So we actually have investors and advisors from a lot of those companies um, so that Airbnb doesn't own Mount in sense of like, you know, loiting over us, but we have put, pin their competitors against each other to see who can work with Mount the fastest. <laughs> Network effects are great, except when you have to build them. And they're phenomenal, except when you have to build them internationally. So the Airbnb was almost a miracle in that it worked because you have to have it work when you go somewhere else, which means you have to have it work everywhere. Otherwise, it's not something. How do you how do you handle that? Are you going just directly after market by market onboarding the Airbnb host and the hosts onboard the, the, the users? Um, so not going market by market. We took a very similar growth approach to Airbnb where uh, we hooked into their network and basically created a referral program. So once we work with a host in Denver, they basically go and sign up all the hosts in Denver so you can capture a market pretty quickly and they get that referral revenue. Um, but in my pitch, I did mention we went viral in the industry. It's actually through conferences. That's how you meet everyone. That's how we signed up those 10,000 properties over 46 different countries. Um, so we have in our growth model, we're prepared to go international pretty quickly for that reason. It's what Airbnb did actually, I think unintentionally, but it worked for them. Um, so it's in our model as well. But how many amenities do you need per market for that to be able to be something feasible? So it's not just you can, you can start, you've got to have enough for it to be worthwhile. Otherwise, it's a party with all guys or all girls. It's not interesting for the other side. No, so actually, that's um, not how Mount works, because technically, if you have amenities at one property, there's travelers coming directly to that property and that host is telling them ahead of time, hey, this property has Mount amenities, you know, rent and use them. So we actually have markets where we have one to two properties. It's Missouri, a really random one. But, um, you know, the travelers are coming to that property. That property is booked on average 65% of the time. So our utilization and customers are kind of built in. It's the reason we went with Airbnbs and hospitality to begin with. You don't have to go find travelers. They're showing up mm -hmm. to the cities. Mm -hmm. No, very. it's very cool. And quick question, Matt, Madison. How much are you looking to raise in total to hit the kind of profitability or sustainable business that you are 
envisioning? So yeah, as I said, we're closing the 3 million right now. The target for our series A is around an 8 million to $10 million round. And then from there, we should be able to prove out profitability and kind of just grow from there. So um, we'll see after that series A, how big we want to get and how much more money we want to pump in, but that is the target. And um, what is the yellow flags that you are anticipating over the 12 to 24 months, given turn in macro conditions and how as you know, as economic headwinds are starting to surface, um, travel can get potentially impacted. Yeah, I would say it's a yellow-ish green flag um, because the recession in the looming, I guess, market is exciting to mount because that's how Airbnb started. And it's why this new trend was created was because people wanted a cheaper way to travel, not hotels. That's where, why Airbnb existed. And then also on the flip side, people needed more income streams. So the exact same thing is happening again, although it's not, how do I become a host? It's how do I make more revenue per door? And mm -hmm. for the last five to six years, everyone has been asking themselves, how do I get more doors? And now that's not the opportunity. It's more revenue. And Mount is the only answer to that question in our industry right now. And so that's why the next 12 to 18 months are so crucial is we need to capitalize on, you know, the demand of what people are demanding Mount and we need to capitalize on it. Thank you. And if you fail, why will it be? I would say it's because we wouldn't be able to move fast enough and have enough people in place to capitalize on that demand. Because, you know, if you, you don't capitalize on the demand, wait 18 months, it might not be there. People might have moved on to the next thing. So um, the next year and a half will be crucial for us. How do you handle the Uber problem of anyone can enter every market and put up a fight as long as they have enough cash to burn? Like the professionalization of it? Not the professionalization. So there was Uber and there was, um, yeah, Lyft. And then there were like 1,700 others. And every oh. city was starting their own little one and they were throwing a million or 10 million or 100 million at it and money was getting burned left and right only to find out actually it still even might not today be a profitable business. But that's another story. But the issue was because it had the local natural uh, network effects, it had to be valuable where you were based. And that's that's challenging. It doesn't have the global. You guys have the global for travelers but you don't have necessarily the global for providers of the services. Yeah, honestly, great question. I, um, our, I, I didn't get to talk about it, but Mount's really big defensibility is the way our software works. We built API first and it allows us to integrate into existing tech stacks of a property. So typically they'll have a property management software. On top of that, they'll have their booking channel, which is Airbnb and others. We integrate into the property management software who have already curated and found all these hosts globally. So maybe they have 50,000, they have 100,000. Um, that's what makes us so defensible because when we integrate into those property management software, we're the only solution that host can work with within the amenity category. So someone could come up on a local level, but it's not gonna work with the PMS, that property management software and Mount Will. So that's why we can beat the, uh, the local smaller players if they pop up. Awesome. And what's been the hardest part to date? Um, honestly, I was doing this in college and graduated last year. So I'd say that was the hardest is just, uh, figuring out an actual product that people wanted a solution, I guess you could say. Um, and then finding that product market fit, uh, getting people believed and bought in, I guess was not the hard part. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's because everyone's traveled and it would just be great to have 
stuff. And exactly. a lot of times the hosts have either no stuff or, or shitty stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's pretty intuitive. People understand it. So it is pretty intuitive. And in theory, as you grow in scale, once you've got all the suppliers, you don't just have to be for Airbnbs and for travel. You can be for anyone for anything and actually crack the rental market for other products as well as because it makes no sense for every single person in the U.S. to own their own lawnmower. I'm sorry. It does not. <laughs> it drives me nuts. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Any last questions on your side, Pratiba? No, just um, pretty intuitive and pretty helpful to hear your passion, uh, Madison. Very impressed. Thank you. I am very impressed as well by you and by all of our pen, uh, by all of our guests. But now it's time to get rid of you and jump into our startup of the night moment. This is where normally there's more of us. Now our votes are very powerful, Pratiba. But we have to kind of just about to say. pick a pick one or two favorites and see if we can find a consensus. And the winner, um, we have our uh, award from the Eugen Agency, focused on all things climate. They'll get five thousand in. Uh, British pounds for design services. That could be a pitch deck, a website, a landing page, anything to make them look incredibly awesome and professional. And the rest of the presenters, there's a there's a consolation prize for you guys as well. Forward.vc slash design. So you want to go first, Pratiba, or should I? Um, why don't you go first to give me the template, but happy to follow your suit and give you mm -hmm. give everyone feedback. I mean, I would say for me. All the companies were pretty darn exciting. To be honest, I would say this is one of the better lineups we've had in terms of the in terms of the potential and the impact of the companies. I would say the two that kind of do it the most for me, Alex and Chill Tech, I was very impressed with because of the circular solution to a problem that people don't think enough about, but really is ballooning with I mean, it gets even worse because the world's going to be heating up. So we're going to need more cold storage. So it just kind of self-perpetuates itself. So that is one where I'm I'm very, very impressed by what they're doing and the technology and the team. And the other one that I would say where I see the biggest kind of upside or potential would be uh, Felas uh, with the liquid air energy storage. I'm very excited about what they're doing. I don't know exactly how that plays in with Exion because I feel like Exion's solution may be better, but I know that I'm not deep enough into the into the battery market to fully understand the energy storage side of that. But solving energy storage is one of the one of the major hurdles, both for kind of rolling out renewables, but also decarbonizing renewables because there's a lot of carbon footprint that's going into renewables that's kind of secretly hidden in there. What what do you think, Pratima? Yeah, no, thank you for that, Matt, uh, and for giving me the playbook. Um, what I'm actually excited about, firstly, as you said, I, I agree, this is a fantastic lineup um, and of different diversified pain points and, and approaches to solution, you know, solving those pain points. Um, I loved how there is a focus from factory on how they're thinking about green production and really seeing, you know, reporting, predict, you know, recommendations and areas that CEOs can better inform themselves. I love how we are th thinking about the next gen solar cells. And this is the one where I wasn't fully, I didn't fully understand given I was uh, not part of mm -hmm. the pitch, but really liked the broader 
uh, aspect of like the market and how they're looking at replacing silicon as a you know, possible alternative with a possible alternative. I agree with you on Phelas, uh, energy storage as a service on really looking at how they're attempting to solve for that market. For me, uh, the two, quite frankly, are my favorite is Chill Technologies, Matt, what you spoke of um, and where I come from, uh, you know, from India, I see a huge need for refrigerated technologies and the way these uh, food waste is becoming a critical portion of the uh, environmental impact, uh, environmental issues and impact that we need to be solving for and mount. Um, I think the reuse economy is big. Um, I loved how crystal clear the pitches and how Madison has been able to prove out the pain points um, and also look at the traction that she's achieved. So I would say these are the two that I feel are my favorite. Yeah, I would say I would say Mount for me would be just barely in, in third place. But I think um I think that puts us at Chill Tech being the number one. They're uh they're our cool startup of the night, so to speak, which is uh which is great news for you, Alex. That means five thousand in uh. 5,000 pounds from the Eugen agency for design services. I'm not sure what you need, but these guys are awesome and they can help you with that. Forward.vc slash design for more details and to work with, yeah, let's just say the coolest uh, designers in the agents, uh, in the industry. If you need NVP product mockups, et cetera, they can help you out. Forward.vc slash um, uh, design. And I want to thank everybody for tuning into this for presenting, for sharing. Congrats to Alex for being crowned startup of the night. Congrats to everybody for pitching and presenting. Like we said, this was probably one of the heaviest hitting lineups we've had so far on the startup tank. Speaking of heavy hitting and lineups, if you want to get into one of our future lineups, it's just the startuptank.com. You can find us there and apply. And we do this every two weeks. We'll have a little break over Christmas and then we're, we're back at it. If you want to find out more about us and what we do, I run Forward VC. We're an early stage climate syndicate and accelerator that try to be the most hands-on and helpful investors in the at the table. Help you get customers, clients, grow, scale, and inject uh, inject um, networking steroids, so to speak, into your company so that you can change the world faster. Pratiba, what about you? Where's the best place for people to find you in Unreasonable? You can catch me on LinkedIn. So feel free to connect up on LinkedIn. And I'm also available on Twitter at Impact Chats, which is my handle. Impact Chats. That's a, that's a nice one. And guys, all of this is brought to you guys by Carta and Valbon. We love Carta for our SPVs. If you're setting up a fund, if you're setting up an SPV, if you're a founder that's trying to put together a friends and family round or an ESOP or do cap table management, Carta's got the solution for you. Forward.vc slash Carta for more details. And if you haven't hit the subscribe button yet on YouTube or whatever podcast platform of your choice, shame on you. Do that now, share this with a friend, help us get these companies in front of more folks because the exposure, that's what really matters for them, helps them with raising money, growing, scaling, et cetera. And speaking of raising, if you're looking to raise, we published our Climate Investor VC and CVC database. There's 850 on there. If you're looking to find the ideal investor, you can filter by stage, sector, geography, check size, and find exactly the right person for you. Forward.vc slash VC database, forward VC VC database. You can find it all on there. And we've got Slack communities for founders and for investors. It's all on the website as well. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I'm your host, Matt Ward. And until next time, this has been the Startup Tank. Cheers.